Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, a podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm Fred Dews. In today's episode, I dive deep into the waters of net neutrality with a top expert on telecommunications law and policy. Stuart Brotman is a non-resident senior fellow in the Center for Technology Innovation here at Brookings and is on the faculty of the University of Tennessee, Knoxville, where he is the Howard Distinguished Endowed Professor of Media Management and Law and also the Beeman Professor of Communication and Information. He is also a faculty member in Harvard Law School's Institute for Global Law and Policy. Stay tuned during the interview for an update on what's happening in Congress with Molly Reynolds. Keep up to date with the Brookings Podcast Network on Twitter at Policy Podcasts. And now on with the interview. Stuart, welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria. Thanks for having me, Fred. So we're talking about net neutrality. Can you first explain for our listeners what is net neutrality? Let's go back to the beginning. It's actually 14 years ago. A professor at the University of Virginia named Timothy Wu, who is currently at the Columbia University Law School, wrote essentially an academic paper. And in that paper, he introduced the concept of net neutrality. And that has been a phrase which has continued over time. Its meaning has changed over time. Uh, But the original meaning, as uh, Professor Wu indicated, was essentially a non-discrimination policy that Internet service providers should have. That means that when an Internet service provider is connected to an end user, they shouldn't be able to discriminate on the basis of the content that they own or are affiliated with versus all the other content that they might not be affiliated with. And so it's a pretty simple concept of non-discrimination. In fact, Professor Wu actually says in that seminal piece that net neutrality equals non-discrimination. And so when it comes down to the, the customer level, the household level, how does that play out for the individual consumer? Well, we all have the experience, obviously, of being online, and I think every consumer who is connected to the Internet expects that they will be able to receive anything coming over at the Internet without having the provider impede what's being sent. So there are two actions that are typically associated with net neutrality. Uh, The first is called blocking, and that's pretty obvious that an Internet service provider would decide to block a particular website because they would be competing with that website uh, or may have some commercial interest for blocking it. And the second, which is something that a number of people have experienced, is something called throttling. And throttling is essentially when certain websites are delivered at much slower speeds or they seem to be frozen in time. And so the notion there is that the consumer might essentially not get the full experience of the Internet if either blocking or throttling takes place. So over the last few years of the Obama administration in particular, we heard a lot about net neutrality. It was in the courts, and it was in the regulatory process. And the Federal Communications Commission chairman, Tom Wheeler, took a lot of actions regarding net neutrality. Can you bring us up to speed on the situation regarding net neutrality by the end of the Obama administration? Let's start at the beginning and then work our way toward the end of the Obama administration. Uh, What the FCC did originally a number of years ago was to establish principles of net neutrality. And these were based essentially on the principles that Professor Wu had articulated in that original article, including the notion that 
ISPs, internet service providers, could not block or throttle. Those were principles. In the regulatory parlance, those are not enforceable regulations or rules. They are essentially stated ideals that the commission would like everyone to follow, but they have no enforcement mechanism. We started there, and then we moved to the process of the commission actually formulating rules in this area. And at the beginning, the FCC formulated rules under its general statutory authority under the Communications Act of 1934 as amended. And that was challenged in court in the United States Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit. And the court essentially overturned the FCC's jurisdiction, the FCC's ability to enact actual regulations. And they did that because they said that the FCC really couldn't use its general statutory authority to enact it. So, step two, the FCC went back to the drawing boards. And it initiated a proceeding to essentially write the rules in a way that might be sustained by the courts. Uh, it decided to take a provision from the Telecommunications Act of 1996, which is actually a big amendment of the original Communications Act. And that provision is called Section 706, which gives power to the FCC to oversee the expansion and implementation of broadband throughout the United States. So the FCC decided to use that as a basis for establishing net neutrality regulations. That was also challenged in the courts. And so we are in a second piece of major appellate litigation. And let me ask, it's challenged in the courts by which party? The second case was challenged by Verizon. That particular case focused on the FCC's ability to formulate net neutrality regulations based on a provision in the Telecommunications Act of 1996, which is an amendment of the original Communications Act of 1934. In the Telecommunications Act of 1996, there's a provision called Section 706, which gives the FCC very broad authority to oversee the implementation of broadband expansion throughout the United States. When the FCC went back to the drawing board in net neutrality, it decided because the previous court had said you can't rely on general statutory authority, that it would have a specific reference to Section 706. And it rewrote its rules to comply with Section 706 with the notion that it could be sustained by the courts. When it was appealed to the United States Court of Appeal for the D.C. Circuit, the D.C. Circuit in part agreed with the FCC. They said Section 706 is a very good provision for some of the net neutrality rules that you've developed, but not for others. And the reason is because the FCC previously had characterized internet service providers as information services. And under the Communications Act and the FCC's regulations, information service providers are essentially not regulated. And as long as the FCC maintained the notion that an ISP was an information service provider, it could not essentially have rules that extended beyond what Section 706 might permit. As a result, for example, commercial contracts between ISPs and 
backhaul carriers. That's a process called peering. So if you're a particular carrier that wants to make sure that you get prioritization in the line as your information is sent to the ISP, you essentially can sign a contract with the ISP. And obviously, there, it's a commercial transaction, so money will exchange hands. The FCC, in its net neutrality rules, decided that it would prohibit that. The court found that the FCC essentially had overstepped its legal boundaries because that was not really part of what Section 706 allowed. Interestingly enough, there had been a prior case a number of years earlier where the FCC's authority to characterize ISPs as either an information service provider or a telecommunications provider was challenged. That went to the United States Supreme Court. And in that case, there was a very interesting dissent by the late Justice Scalia, who essentially said that the FCC has the ability over time to change the characterization of internet service providers from an information service provider, unregulated, to a telecommunications provider regulated. The FCC, in formulating the new net neutrality rules, decided to look at the dissent of Justice Scalia. They used that as a roadmap for saying, after the two appeals essentially limited their authority, they decided to recharacterize internet service provision away from being an information service into being a telecommunication service, telecommunication service under the Communications of Act of 1934 is regulated under Title II, the common carrier provisions of the Act. And so that was the major change that was formulated under Chairman Wheeler, former Chairman Wheeler, and enacted and upheld in round three of the net neutrality battle. And that was done by the D.C. Circuit last year. All right. Thank you for that thorough explanation. And now we seem to be in perhaps round four, the new Trump administration and also a new FCC chairman, Ajit Pai, who has called net neutrality, quote, a mistake. Where are we now in terms of the net neutrality issue? Well, yes, we are to some extent in round four. Under the new chairmanship of Ajit Pai, the FCC has released something called a notice of proposed rulemaking that essentially is a public comment period where the FCC indicates what it would like to be doing and that public and interested parties respond to that. And based on that proceeding, the FCC will then issue a final decision. And that final decision may be ultimately appealed to the courts once again. What's happening now, though, is that net neutrality, the war is over the essential aspect of net neutrality, I think, has taken hold uh, as a corporate matter and as a general principle. I don't think there's any fundamental disagreement, whether it's with the regulators or with the internet service providers or with the so-called edge providers, that there should not be any throttling or blocking taking place. And in fact, we have a number of underlying agreements that some of the major ISPs already have by virtue of acquiring companies, for example, when Comcast acquired NBC Universal, it was required to stipulate that it would enforce net neutrality as a condition for that acquisition. 
We had the same situation with AT&T, which last year acquired DirecTV. And as a condition there, they are required to do net neutrality. So we have both a general principle that I think everyone accepts. And in fact, we do have some existing legal obligations for major ISPs. So, so really, since the war is over, what are we talking about? So what are we talking about now is this issue of Title II regulation, whether or not the FCC can take this basket of net neutrality obligations and keep them in the Title II framework that was initiated and ultimately upheld by the United States Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit during the Obama administration based on the third round, which was initiated by former Chairman Wheeler. And again, that's Title II of the 1934 Communications Act as amended. So we're talking about an 83-year-old law in this day and age. That's kind of stunning. Well, I think it's important to focus on those two words, as amended, Mm -hmm. because the act itself is not actually 83 years old. It's a little bit like building a house, and then over the years, you have new rooms added, you have it remodeled, you have it updated. In fact, we have the Telecommunications Act of 1996, which was a major revision of the Communications Act of 1934. And we've had a series of other amendments over the years. So when we talk about the Communications Act of 1934, that as amended, that really represents the entire house with remodeled rooms. So I think when you look at it in that context, the age of the house is not necessarily as relevant as how it's been modernized over time. That doesn't mean that potentially it still may be modernized further and may include some focus on net neutrality provisions if Congress decided that it wanted to step in and do something here. So insofar as the principle of net neutrality is accepted, the war is over, why is Chairman Pai issuing a notice of proposed rulemaking again on the matter? Chairman Pai was a commissioner before he was Chairman Pai, and he was in the minority under the Democratic majority that Tom Wheeler represented. When the new net neutrality rules were affirmed by the FCC, it was by a three to two vote. The three Democratic commissioners were in favor. The two Republican commissioners opposed it. One of those was Ajit Pai. He was very firm in his dissent. He believed that there was no basis for taking net neutrality and moving it into this Title II basket. And so he's been on record well before he became chairman that he did not think that this was the appropriate legal mechanism for having the commission act in this area. Now that he's chairman, one of his first actions was essentially to reopen this area and have a new rulemaking to advance the notion that Title II is not the appropriate regulatory mechanism. If the new rulemaking process continues apace, I mean, how long does such a process take to play out for the FCC to, say, issue a new rule for the status quo to change? Everything takes time, and particularly because we are in a legal framework here. Uh, Typically what happens is that the FCC has a period, relatively short, about three months to have public comments. Then it has a reply period, which is where interested parties and others can reply to the initial comments. Uh, And it has no legal obligation when it then needs to issue a final rule. 
It, in fact, may decide it never wants to issue a final rule, and so the status quo would stay in place. If the commission does issue a final rule, essentially the gun goes off for a new starting gate. And what happens there is that parties can then petition the FCC to reconsider that. And there's a whole period of reconsideration. Again, there's no real time frame for when it takes place. If we went through that process, then we go into the appellate process. And so uh, parties may decide to appeal this decision. And I would expect, given the controversy involved here, we have fairly firm positions on a number of different parties and interest groups. And that probably would result in another appeal of a final order by the FCC to the United States Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit. At that point, we are then in a judicial docketing situation, so uh, there's no time frame for when the court will hear the case. If the court hears the case, it would typically be done by a three-judge panel. And there is a procedure in the court. Once that decision is released, there could be a review by the full panel of the D.C. Circuit, all of the judges, which again may take time. And ultimately, depending on that decision, that could be appealed to the Supreme Court and that may take another year. So if you add up all of these aspects that I've just indicated, we could be talking several years. Over the past few months, as this issue has resurfaced under the new chairman of the FCC, it sounds like when you listen to the arguments and the reactions of the pro-net neutrality side, that net neutrality is literally about to be killed and that the ISPs are going to start charging customers a lot more for you know streaming certain kinds of things and they're going to be blocking. It sounds like it's a crisis right now. But is it really a crisis? No, I don't think there's any, any crisis right now. Obviously, we are at high decibel level in the political environment and clearly we have a number of different partisan interests here. But I think at the end of the day, going back to what I said initially, the war essentially is over. I think everyone, virtually everyone, agrees that net neutrality is a good principle, the principle of non-discrimination. And I think everyone understands that when you sit in front of a computer, when you have a mobile device, uh, you do not want to have particular content blocked on that device. And you certainly don't want companies deciding that they are going to slow down the speed based on whether or not they have an affiliation with that particular content. I don't think there's any fundamental disagreement. Obviously, from a political symbolism and advocacy standpoint, if we called this a battle over Title II, I think everyone would be rushing to get coffee because that would put a lot of people to sleep. It doesn't really galvanize people to fight for a particular regulatory provision in the Communications Act of 1934 as amended. So I think as as long as it's kept at the political level of net neutrality, it can be essentially argued out in the political sphere as well as in the regulatory battleground. Well, so speaking of the political sphere, is Congress involved in this at all? If so, how? Well, Congress may be involved. Obviously, Congress oversees the FCC, and Congress wrote the Communications Act. So Congress has the full authority to either rewrite the legislation or to overrule the FCC if it decided to, or to take what the FCC did and essentially incorporate it 
into the Communications Act through an amendment. So Congress has a lot of opportunities here. I think one of the major legislative aspects now that is different than during the Obama administration is that we have full control by one party of both Congress and the White House. So during the Obama administration, there was some talk of having net neutrality addressed in legislation, uh, but President Obama indicated very strongly that if that legislation reached his desk, he would veto it. And there were not enough votes to override that veto, so essentially it would have been a stalemate. I think politically now we're in the situation if Congress did decide to act, and obviously we have control of the House and Senate by the Republicans, the strong presumption is that President Trump, a Republican, would not veto that act and essentially would sign it. One other issue that I've seen come up in the regulatory space is to do with the FCC's jurisdiction versus the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission's jurisdiction. Can you discuss what that issue is all about? Sure. It gets a little uncomplicated, so let me try to peel the onion a little bit. The Federal Trade Commission is governed by an entirely different piece of law called the Federal Trade Commission Act, which goes back again to the New Deal in the 1930s. And the Federal Communications Commission is governed by the Communications Act of 1934, two totally different pieces of legislation, two totally different agencies. The FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, has very broad authority as a consumer protection agency. And that means if, for example, you were a consumer or a group of consumers who found that an internet service provider was throttling or blocking your service, you might go to the FCC or the FTC might initiate on its own a complaint against that ISP and has full enforcement authorities. What's happened in this Title II discussion and implementation is that under the Federal Trade Commission Act, the FTC is prohibited from overseeing or regulating common carriers. And now that all of the ISPs are in this common carrier Title II bucket, essentially that prohibits the FTC from being involved. So we have a major aspect of consumer protection, which has been actually removed through this process of having net neutrality go under Title II. And that's very controversial. Certainly, the FTC would like to see its full authority restored. It would like to be able to investigate and prosecute some of these potential areas of throttling and blocking. But at this point, it's unresolved whether or not it has that power. There currently is a case in the United States Court of Appeal for the Ninth Circuit where the FTC essentially tried to enforce a throttling situation with AT&T Mobility, and AT&T Mobility went to court and said, you can't do that because essentially you have no authority given that we're governed by Title II. And the appellate court upheld that. They essentially said, we agree with that. That case has now gone to what's called an end bank proceeding, which means that all of the judges on the Ninth Circuit will now hear that case. So we are a little bit in limbo, but at least where we are today and for the foreseeable future is that the FTC has limited or no authority to be a consumer protection agency over ISPs in this area. Let me expand the focus somewhat to another 
issue that I think is related, and that has to do with what we call the digital divide and also ISPs expanding or not their services into less served communities, maybe rural communities, for example. Does net neutrality make that expansion less likely? I think this is a case of absolute apples and oranges. They're two different worlds. Obviously, they both relate to the Internet, but I, I have not seen any empirical or other data which indicates any relationship between net neutrality and expansion of broadband service. So, for example, if you're in a rural area, the fact that you have Title II regulations probably would not create any more or less. Now, some of the ISPs have argued that, in fact, under this new Title II regulatory regime, they have less incentive to invest. And if you accept that as a premise, there may be a relationship on that. And some of the data is out there, uh, but I think it's relatively controversial as to what the data shows over what period of time, and particularly whether the decision to invest is directly related to the Title II implementation or whether it has some other implications. A similar argument that people have made in response to attempts to regulate under Title II has been that ISPs would be less likely to innovate, whatever that means. Can you address that concept? Well, innovation is a very broad term and can mean a lot of different things to a lot of people. I think if we take it as a notion that ISPs should have full technical and commercial capability to come up with different business models, different ways of relating. So let me give you a quick example of innovation. We've been talking for many years about telemedicine, the idea that you could have remote diagnostic from major medical centers, and that would help particularly areas of the country like rural areas that don't have that service. Let's say you're the Mayo Clinic and you want to have a telemedicine service where you can diagnose various ailments uh, based on digital data that is being sent from a rural facility. You would need a speed and an assurance that when you download that back to the rural hospital, that essentially has the same fidelity. That means you may have a much higher speed than another content provider. And under the existing Title II regulations, you are not allowed to contract for that. So the Mayo Clinic would not be able to do it. That may have some real impact on innovation. And so I think that argument may play out over time, particularly as we come up with these specialized applications that require much higher speeds and that certainly have a great public good. As long as I'm here in the studio with one of the top experts on telecommunications law and policy. I'd like to ask you to comment on any other major issues in your field that you think are super important that Americans, the global community, ought to be paying attention to. Well, we still have a national broadband plan, and many people forget that, but the national broadband plan was enacted based on a congressional mandate in the year 2009, which essentially said that the United States needs to have a national broadband plan. And obviously that broadband plan has been implemented and continues to be implemented. So I think it would be interesting for many people to focus on where are we with respect to the national broadband plan, some of the issues you raise with respect to the digital divide and the expansion of broadband are very important. Obviously, 
the notion of greater competition. So it's not just the availability of broadband, but that you have competitive forces so that consumers essentially have choices. That's all enormously important. We also have a major initiative right now at the FCC to take a large portion of our broadcast spectrum and to reallocate that broadcast spectrum for new digital wireless services. I think all the data shows that we're moving very rapidly into a wireless mobile world. And so there's great demand for that. And the FCC will have a critical technical role to play here in terms of how that transition takes place. I think the third area that's important is the area of media ownership. The FCC has gone back and forth over a series of court challenges in recent years as to what its authority should be in regulating various aspects of media ownership, and in particular, what evidence the FCC is looking at in evaluating it. There are a number of different restrictions. I think one to really focus on now is the prohibition of local newspaper companies from owning broadcast operations. As you know, a number of print operations, newspaper companies, are in very severe financial shape. A number of them have gone under, in the process of going under. And it would be very helpful if they could potentially merge with a local radio or a local television station to have more efficient operations, to generate greater revenues through the broadcast operation. They are prohibited from doing that right now. And so one of the questions larger public policy questions are what are we going to do as a country to help preserve newspapers and print? We do have another piece of legislation which has been in force for many years called the Newspaper Preservation Act. And that act essentially allows two newspapers in a particular market to merge with each other. And we've seen that in a number of cities. But what we have now is a continuing prohibition of that same activity for a local newspaper to merge or to acquire or to be part of a local broadcast operation, whether it's a radio station or a television station. And so the question I think over time is, are we as a country going to have a uniform policy that essentially favors the preservation of newspapers? And if so, should it be applied to electronic media as it is to print media? Well, these are a lot of very fascinating and important issues for us to follow. I want to thank you, Stuart, for sharing your time and expertise today. Thanks so much, Fred. Great to be here. You can learn more about Stuart Brotman and his work on our website, brookings.edu slash techinnovation, and follow him on Twitter at Stuart N. Brotman. Now let's find out what's happening in Congress with Molly Reynolds. My name is Molly Reynolds, and I'm a fellow in the Governance Studies Program here at the Brookings Institution. Most of the attention on Capitol Hill recently has focused on Republican efforts to pass a health care bill in the Senate, thanks in part to a self-imposed target Senate Republicans have set for themselves of July 4th recess. In the shadow of the health care fights, it's another set of issues with actual deadlines the budget process. As has become typical, Congress finds itself substantially behind schedule in completing its budgetary work. The budget resolution, which sets a broad framework for revenue and spending for the next fiscal year, is supposed to be done by April 15th. 
While we should expect the process to get off to a late start in years when a new president has come into office as Congress, especially one controlled by the same party as the White House, waits to get some input on the executive's budget priorities, this year is slow even in comparison to recent transition years. In 2001, Congress managed to finish the budget resolution by early May, and in 2009, it was done by late April. So why the delay this year? In part, the decision to use the unfinished budget process from last year to work on the health care bill has reduced the incentive to work hard on next year's budget resolution. In addition, the persistent divides among House Republicans have also made it difficult to come to an agreement on what a budget resolution would look like. In particular, disagreements about defense spending, the proposed discretionary cuts in President Trump's budget, and whether to use the reconciliation process to cut social programs like temporary assistance for needy families and the supplemental nutrition assistance program have made agreement elusive. The budget resolution is meant to lay the groundwork for the annual appropriations process, whereby Congress decides how much to spend on discretionary programs in the federal budget like defense, education, and scientific research. Here again, Congress is behind schedule with just one bill approved by the House Appropriations Committee. In 2001, there were four appropriations bills approved by the Appropriations Committee for floor consideration in the House before the 4th of July recess. Their Senate counterparts had finished one. In 2009, the House panel had finished work on seven, while the Senate committee had completed four. While Congress could complete additional work between now and when they leave town, there are no additional full committee markups in either chamber scheduled between now and the recess. It's likely, then, that Congress heads out for recess with substantially less work done than in other recent comparable years. It's virtually certain that Congress will need to turn to a continuing resolution, a single large omnibus spending bill, or some combination to keep the government running come October 1st. But the calendar is not the only thing to blame. A two-year agreement adopted in 2015 to relax the limits on discretionary spending that were imposed in 2011 expires this year, and the decision about whether and how to ease those caps, which are separately in place for defense and non-defense spending, has not been made. Several ideas for getting the appropriations process going in the next few weeks are reportedly under consideration in the House, including doing one bill that combines various security-related programs, or simply sending the Senate a single package covering everything in advance of the August recess. That approach, say proponents, would buy the leadership some goodwill by giving the House a chance to adopt a measure that reflects conservative Republican priorities, even knowing that it would fail in the Senate. It's unclear, though, if a symbolic move now would ease ultimate resolution of the issue later. Former Speaker of the House John Boehner repeatedly gave his conference chances to vote on more extreme bills than the Senate would ultimately pass before bringing a final deal to his members, only to see frustration with him build over time. As the appropriations process gets underway, one additional major issue looms in the background, the debt limit. Current projections put the date at which the federal government would not be able to meet its obligations sometime between September and November, but some in Congress and the Treasury Department have begun to discuss the possibility of a July vote on an increase to the limit, especially in the Senate. Whether and how the debt limit vote gets linked to other fiscal decisions remains to be seen. The bottom line is this. There's a lot of work to be done and not much time to do it in. That's what's happening in Congress. To learn more about what's been happening in the Senate on the health care bill, you can listen to Molly Reynolds on our recent 5 on 45 episode. Hey, listeners, want to ask an expert a question? You can by sending an email to me at bcp at brookings.edu. 
If you attach an audio file, I'll play it on the air. And I'll get an expert to answer and include it in an upcoming episode. Thanks to all of you who have sent in questions already. And that does it for this edition of the Brookings Cafeteria, brought to you by the Brookings Podcast Network. Follow us on Twitter at Policy Podcasts. My thanks to audio engineer and producer Gaston Ribeiro, with assistance from Mark Holscher. Vanessa Sauter is the producer. Bill Finan does the book interviews. Our interns are Sam Dart, China Holmes, and Brian Harrington. Design and web support comes from Jessica Pavone, Eric Abalahin, and Rebecca Weiser. And thanks to David Nassar and Richard Fawal for their support. You can subscribe to the Brookings Cafeteria on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get podcasts and listen to it in all the usual places. Visit us online at brookings.edu. Until next time, I'm Fred Dews. Thank you.